Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. My guest today is Ambassador Barbara Leaf. Following undergraduate studies at the College of William and Mary and a master's degree in foreign affairs from the University of Virginia, Barbara led a distinguished career as a U.S. diplomat specializing in the Middle East Gulf region. Over the course of her career, she has served in numerous State Department roles, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Iraq, Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Arabian Peninsula, the first Director of the Office of Iranian Affairs, and in postings throughout the region, including in Basra, Cairo, Jerusalem, and Tunis. Most recently, she served for four years as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Arab Emirates. Following her retirement in 2018, Barbara joined the Washington Institute as a senior fellow, where she directs the program on Arab politics. Ambassador Leaf, a warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. It's almost as good as being at uh, UVA myself. Well, we really appreciate your time today. So Barbara, let's begin with some context. You spent four years as U.S. Ambassador at, in the uh, United Arab Emirates, but some of our listeners may be a bit confused by the political structure of the UAE and how Abu Dhabi and Dubai fit in. Can, can you clarify this? Yeah, it's a really interesting country because at the time they achieved independence, less than 50 years ago in 1971, the rulers of the Seven Little Emirates collection of societies decided to band together and form a federation, which at the time and really until today in the United uh, in the across the region is really not a model that you see elsewhere. So it's a federated country, much like the United States. And Abu Dhabi is the capital and the largest emirate. And Dubai is sort of like uh, New York to, to, to Washington. It's the commercial hub of the United Arab Emirates. And Barbara, am I right also in thinking that most of the oil is predominantly located in one of the Emirates? Yes, some 85% of the oil and gas uh, resources are in the uh, Emirate of Abu Dhabi. So, so what was it like living there on a personal level? I mean, you've, you've had postings all over the world. Did, did you enjoy it? Did you find it different than living in the other places you'd been assigned? It was very, very different. I had never lived in the Gulf. I had uh, worked on Gulf issues. I had vis uh, traveled there for work. Uh, I had made one uh, holiday trip there to Oman with my family. But uh, living there was really interesting because it's a it's a, a society that is a, a mix of Bedouin and seafaring elements and traditions. And so uh, it's also a very modern future-looking society, very moderate in outlook, moderate socially and in terms of religious practices, and really has a sort of live and let live approach to peoples of other faiths, which also made it uh, a wonderful place for a very large and diverse uh, international community to live and work. Would you say that that's been part of its success, that more tolerant um, approach has encouraged investment, encouraged uh, tourism, for example? 
Absolutely. And I, I think the other thing is that that's quite striking when you're there is that the UAE has really been blessed with two generations of forward-thinking strategic um, leaders, both at the level of Abu Dhabi, the Emirate, and uh, Dubai, uh, the Emirate. And those two Emirates have really provided the national leadership. Um, and they have really transformed this country in less than 50 years to the most uh, modern and modernistic society in, uh, in, in the Arab world, that's for certain. Just before we move on, I, I wanted to ask also about your experience as a professional woman. And I'm guessing what you've said about it being a reasonably moderate society, that maybe that wasn't that different than other places you've lived, or were there challenges? So I would I would just tell you that counterintuitively for for most people service as a woman as a as an American woman as an American diplomat um in the Middle East is really a piece of cake. Your 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 office, your title and your citizenship as an American as the citizen and and public servant of a great power take you so far. And essentially, you, uh, as I and many other women would say, you're treated as a third gender. And you are elevated because of your status as a diplomat and as an American diplomat. So I served in Egypt, which is a very conservative society socially and, and very hierarchical. I was treated wonderfully. And I had access, I enjoyed access there as I did in the UAE, that um, ma- my male peers did not. Let's turn to your experience as a diplomat, and I'd love to talk about um, U.S. policy. Obviously, we stand at the beginning of a transition to a new U.S. administration that, um, of course, is going to bring new ideas and and new priorities uh, with it upon inauguration in in January, I suspect already working on uh, many issues. In your view, what issues in the Middle East are likely to most immediately command the attention of the new Biden administration? So, Peter, I would say there there is the typical syndrome where a new president, a new administration comes in, set in its own mind as to its priorities, both domestic and foreign. And of course, President-elect Biden has just a towering heap of domestic issues of, of enormous urgency and importance to tackle and to prioritize. But when he turns to foreign affairs, he has elaborated consistently that the Middle East will drop in priority for him. But when he talks about the Middle East, he talks in terms of the primacy of the relationship with Israel, uh, the need to do new negotiations with Iran, and the need to find some sort of reassessed relationship, redefined relationship with Saudi Arabia. But I can assure you, the region is waiting with a whole series of other issues of enormous urgency and complexity. So tell me a little bit more about each of those. Um, Obviously, the relationship with Israel over the last uh, year or two of the Trump administration has certainly been active. There have been new recognitions of the state of Israel. Um, are, is, is that what, what's going on there? And are those policy um, initiatives likely to continue going forward? Can we expect to see, for example, more Arab countries uh, recognizing the state of Israel? So I certainly think that is possible, that last piece, that 
this will open the way eventually, and I stress eventually, to other states moving in that direction. I would not expect Biden to prioritize pushing these states in the way that the Trump administration has. And I say pushing because the, the, the speed with which, be it Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, move towards normalization very enormously. And you saw with Bahrain and Sudan that it was really under pressure from the Trump administration that they moved forward. On the, on the other hand, the UAE took that initiative. But I really don't see another state right now in the region that will initiate that kind of move, at least expeditiously. So what's in most important to you as someone with deep expertise in the region? If you were advising the Biden administration, what would be number one and number two on, on the ambassador leaf list of priorities? Understanding that President-elect Biden wants to prioritize a whole set of other regional issues of considerable moment and relationships, like the one with China, which really have global dimensions and, and import, nonetheless, we have abiding national security interests that can be knocked about and injured if we step away from and, and sort of uh, turn our back on the, the, the many boiling pots in the region. I would not propose that he dive right into Syria, but as he begins to roll up his sleeves and, and, and get ready to engage with Iran, he has got to keep in mind that there is an elaborate sort of geometry that connects how he deals with these Gulf countries, including Saudi Arabia, how he deals with Israel, how he helps Iraq achieve a modicum of stability and in, in, in this squeeze play that it, it, it has been in between Iran and the U.S. Um, not all roads lead to Iran, but Iran has managed to intrude itself into many, re into many regional conflicts and they will not abate unless there's strong U.S. leadership, some engagement, and certainly some effort to disentangle Iran from these conflicts. Okay, well, let, let's get into that a, a little bit more. I mean, you served as the first director of the Office for Iranian Affairs, so obviously know of what you speak. From my perspective, not really knowing a whole lot about the situation, it just seems to me that the U.S. whipsaws between engagement and confrontation. What's going on here? How do you see the issue of Iran and what's really at stake from the U.S. point of view? So, Peter, you're absolutely right. We have, over the course of 41 years, had a really, exactly as you put it, a whipsawing approach to Iran. And indeed, Iran has, has paid us back in kind. So we've had 41 years of a, of a frequently violent non-relationship. And I stress the non-relationship because I think that that lack of direct, uh, consistent contact, diplomatic, structured contact has served us ill. So again, counterintuitively, I would say we have got to think about that moment when we push front and center that we open formal diplomatic relations with Tehran. But leaving that aside, um, I, I want to see us, I would like to see the Biden administration manage not to do that seesawing back and forth that we, that we have seen 
from one administration to another. The Bush administration terming uh, Iran, um, you know, an absolute enemy. Uh, Obama pushing in the direction of narrow negotiations with Iran that achieved a, a, a substantial piece of negotiation, but then assumed that that would sort out the rest of the issues. And and if anything, left some of our partners thinking that um, somehow Washington was tilting towards Iran. And then you've had the other swing in the other direction with Trump and the maximum pressure campaign. It requires, among other things, an awful lot of nuance. It does. And unfortunately, and this is where I think uh, the rubber will hit the road and reality will, um, uh, well, as the, the saying goes, no plans uh, withstand or survive first contact with the enemy. So the plan to pivot away or to move more senior level uh, engagement and, and energy to other regions uh, divest the region of some of our military assets are going to run smack into this really ambitious plan to open up three different sets of negotiations with Iran and after a very turbulent four years. So I guess I'm thinking that over a longer term horizon, as the United States achieves um, energy independence and China as its economy continues to grow, becomes more and more of an energy importer. Should we expect to see China more physically present on the stage, you might say, defending its interests to ensure, for example, the safe passage of oil out of the Persian Gulf? Well, you know, that's that's really an interesting question. And to date, China has you could you could say, as President Trump has said, and uh, and others have said, you know, China's been a free rider on on the U.S. defense and security guarantees, the 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 U.S. security shield that has existed for forty years um, over the the Persian Gulf and those those countries. Does China want to step in and succeed the U.S. and take on that burden? Not at all. Um, is the U.S. walking away from it? It really looked like it last summer when you had a series of Iranian attacks on Gulf energy infrastructure and shipping and very little in the way of a U.S. response beyond rhetoric. So it's not yet clear, but it is a fair question that as China develops its um, Belt and Road Initiative globally, and has assets globally, including in the Middle East, it will seek to, do, to uh, protect them. And so you see you know, the first uh, blue water port, naval port, military port um, that China has away from the mainland uh, cropping up in Djibouti. I, I think this is something that the Biden administration will watch very, very carefully. And I think this is where the, the Gulf countries have got to step carefully as well. Other than Iran, which you've already discussed, are there other countries in the region that seem notably open to a strengthened relationship with China? So all of the Gulf countries are, and, and indeed many countries in the region, are rapidly developing uh, deep economic and trade relationships with China. And that's, 
I mean, that is uh, obviously a sovereign right, and that doesn't necessarily displace the United States. And the fact is, um, as you noted, the 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 shift uh, of the U.S. in terms of its uh, the U.S. has become an oil juggernaut in its own right, but also it is simply importing less of the Gulf type of crude than it did in years past. And China and Asia in general, the Japanese, Taiwan, um, South Korea, those four are taking up a huge amount, uh, increasing amounts of the, of the oil and, and uh, the energy resources coming from the Gulf countries. Um, I, like I say, I don't think it's a, it's not a black or white picture at this point. It's really a question of whether, whether these countries develop defense relationships that, that really does have ramifications. Um, and of course there will continue to be friction points over issues such as Huawei and, and just generally, uh, trying to hem China in on some of its more predatory practices. So, and then I guess even more broadly is the whole overlay of climate change and the world's yes. increasing desire to move toward a renewable uh, source of, of energy. And I guess I'm curious to know how the major oil producing countries in the region think about this issue. In other words, do they lay awake at night contemplating a future in which there is limited demand for their product, which is of course their primary source of income, or do they rest assured that growth in emerging markets means that the world will be dependent on oil for the foreseeable future? So I think these days it's somewhere in between those two poles. Um, what I recall when I when I arrived in Abu Dhabi, I arrived there at the end of December 2014, and the price price of oil hit had hit about 110 dollars the previous summer, and by December it was cascading downwards, and it it hit 30. I want to say the following spring. I mean, it it was really a a sleigh ride, a downward, a downhill sleigh ride. And right about that point, um, although it was sobering to the Emiratis and to the Gulf countries in general, there was a certain, I would say, smugness on their part that the crashing sound of oil prices would, would affect U.S. shale producers most heavily. So really, they didn't have to worry all that much. Also, at the time, I remember this ish, this discussion of peak oil. You know, essentially, where is that point in the future that, uh, de- you know, where you have a, a decline in demand such that you you have uh, ultimately trapped assets. You know, uh, the reserves of oil that just are just can't bring the uh, the price point that that makes it worth bringing them out of the ground little and selling there's not the demand and so on and where you have this definitive shift away from uh from hydrocarbons and at that time and this was you know 2015 2016 uh, there was there was a a great deal of of comfort notwithstanding the lowered oil prices at that point was way off in the future and i think what everyone has woken up to with with a sort of a jolt provided by the pandemic and what it did to 
first oil demand and then what the ill-timed uh, oil war between uh, MB Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin did in terms of supply. This has all brought the issue to the fore and has oil analysts, smart oil analysts saying, well, you know what? Maybe peak peak oil is is out out there in the not too distant future, out there in the next decade. The Gulf countries generally think they've got at least two decades. But to your question, they are all to one degree or another working in the renewable space. Some with greater speed and, and agility than others. So Barbara, with those investments, are 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 those primarily for their own domestic energy grids, or are they actually making investments for export of that um, sort of energy? A mix of both. This goes into the space of economic diversification, which is a whole other topic um, that uh, of of enormous priority for these governments. And Saudi Arabia has been much in the news, of course, since 2016, when the crown prince unveiled uh, what they call Vision 2030, which is a essentially a, a socioeconomic transformation of the kingdom, but which is premised on taking the Saudi Arabia firmly away from its heavy, heavy reliance on oil and gas, but principally oil, as the driver of the of the economy, and uh, investing in manufacturing in a in a new tourism industry, um, in renewables and so on. Uh, the UAE has been doing this for 20, 30 years now, um, so they're quite a bit further ahead, but they're also a, a much smaller society relative to their wealth. Um, the problem with all of this is that again the pandemic and the thwacking of oil prices, oil demand, and then and, and the prices plummeting, uh, has really hit them in their wallets. And these programs to diversify, to build out whole new sectors, and to really push for the springing up of a private sector, they're very capital intensive. And this is, um, so they've really had a double, double whammy. It's interesting that you mentioned that you know the UAE is is several decades ahead in terms of diversifying its economy building Dubai as a tourism center and a financial services center but i also recall earlier earlier in our conversation you spoke about how the UAE is a relatively tolerant and and open society for saudi to be similarly successful in in achieving that sort of economic diversification, is it too going to have to pursue a path of greater openness and tolerance to foreign ideas? Absolutely. And that's the going in proposition um, that that underlies um, Vision 2030. And in fact, that's what Mohammed bin Salman has front loaded in terms of the really significant changes that occur that have occurred in the in the kingdom in the last several years. One of the first things he did, which was most popular and and achieved the most immediate results in terms of not just public satisfaction, but just sort of clearing the public space, was pulling back the religious police. So the the religious police he used to go around and and strictly scrutinize all public behavior, keep 
men and women, Saudi men and women, but all men and women who were in the kingdom strictly segregated in the public space. Make sure, you know, they made sure that women were fully cloaked and, and garbed and women couldn't drive and so on. So the first two years of Vision 2030 arguably were, were kind of the easy stuff and they were the most popular stuff because it was really throwing open the windows metaphorically, letting in a lot of sunlight, bringing in a lot of outside cultural and entertainment um, uh, elements, activities, singers. I mean, things that they had not had in the kingdom for 60 years. So that was to set the stage for a lot of these other economic changes and getting Saudis, young Saudis, to go into service jobs, to work in a hotel or to work in tourist industry, um, you know, hotel uh, restaurants and, and, and so forth, museums. That's a sea change. Um, and it's not done overnight, but one thing Mohammed bin Salman has demonstrated, and he's got plenty of detractors for a lot of reasons um, that I could elaborate. Um, he's a young man in a hurry, so he pushed a lot of really dramatic cultural changes to modernize Saudi society. That is a necessary precursor to a modern business-friendly economy. So also, like the UAE, would you expect over time more immigration into Saudi Arabia for, you know, both the construction sector and the service sector and elsewhere? No, actually not, because his biggest problem right now and the problem that that was uh, one of the problems that was front and center in his mind and in the minds of those who crafted the the plan was was unemployment of Saudis, of young Saudis. Now, you know, in the UAE, you've got essentially 90% of the population are expatriates. And to one degree or another, you've got similarly high, high levels of disproportionality in in these other Gulf countries. But Oman and Saudi Arabia are are much more heavily weighted towards their own citizens. So in Saudi Arabia, there, there has been, as part of this plan, there has been pressure to reduce foreign labor, to essentially send them home and to make space for young Saudis to take jobs that they hitherto would not have considered doing, taxi drivers um, and sort of lower level uh, white collar or even blue collar jobs, um, shopkeepers and so forth. That That is disruptive. That uh, takes uh, that batters consumer demand as you send expatriates home with their families and so forth. So it's, um, but, but so I, to answer your question, they're trying to find uh, a level set that fully employs young Saudis and brings women into the workplace uh, in a, in a, in a more direct way. So if I, if I'm reading you right, I, I get the sense you're pretty optimistic about a modernized, diversified Saudi Arabia. Is that fair? Well, I'm not willing to say optimistic because I think there there are just really huge, uh, huge obstacles ahead. And look, they were significant even before the pandemic. The pandemic, however, has really uh, drawn all of these issues into sharp relief. So remember, I said this is supposed to be a transformation. It's supposed to be a mental transformation, and that's quite 
difficult to do um, to bring, and, and I saw this in the UAE where, again, you've got a, a very open society, people who travel uh, constantly, uh, you know, of a million Emiratis, I dare say 80% of them have gone not just outside the country, but outside the Gulf, outside the region, to Western Europe, to Asia. They, they, they travel a lot, the Emiratis, and they have the money to. Um, with the Saudis, you've got an actual threshold of poverty and lower income. And, um, and Saudis who, if they've ever been out of the kingdom, have only gone over to Sharjah or to Kuwait or Bahrain across the uh, causeway. They've got, they're very insular. Uh, and they have not grown up with the notion that they have a responsibility to find their own way without help from the government. And so this is a transformation of the contract, the compact between the ruler and ruled. And if you've got ample money because oil prices are $80, um, then you're doing fine. Oil prices right now are hovering around $45, and the break-even point budgetarily for Saudi Arabia is somewhere in the vicinity of 80, 80 to 85. And then you've had a lot of problems stemming from Mohammed bin Salman's own erratic and, and reckless and, and rather ruthless uh, way of running things. So they are going to go, they are entering heavy waters in terms of coming out of the pandemic, and they're not out, no one is, in terms of the economic outfall. And again, Vision 2030 requires a huge amount of capital. Mm -hmm. You gotta find it from somewhere, inside the country, or from foreign, uh, you know, FDI. And um, their FDI quests are not finding traction. So I'm not saying yeah. it's a disaster, I'm saying it's it's gotten ever more complex now because of the pandemic. Yeah. And as you say, being budgetarily underwater by 40 or $45 a barrel yes. makes the, the calculations all that much more complex. All the calculations that went into the plan in 2016. And, and, and it's quite a, it's quite a piece to read in terms of the, you know, remember it's called 2030. I mean, they were expecting to hit all sorts of benchmarks or at least aspiring to, um, in, in, uh, you know, 14 years. And that's, you know, to transform in such a short time is really, uh, quite an undertaking, but, you know, it's premised on things like a uh, half a billion dollars to build this high tech futuristic city on the Red Sea that you've heard so much about Naum, but also to do all of this infrastructure and build out, um, and this, you know, uh, bespoke tourism industry just from the ground up. In the end, this this or something like it, this socioeconomic transformation um, is not only worthy, it's overdue, and I would argue it's urgent for the long for the medium term stability of the kingdom. So yes, absolutely he should be pursuing it. But boy, is it a big bite of the apple. So if we come back around to the place we started with with U.S. foreign policy, you you mention the kingdom as one of the three areas that the administration is going to have to focus on in addition to, to Israel and Iran. What do you see for the future of U.S.-Saudi 
relationships? What's that piece of the picture need to look like? So there's expectation and, and in no small part um, stimulated by comments that President-elect Biden himself has made a number of times during the campaign, that there will be a real, in fact, he has said there will be a sort of a reassessment, a soup to nuts of the relationship with Saudi Arabia. And one one senses in that that it's a punitive reassessment. But I will say as a, as a former government official myself, and having gone through many such administration turnovers, transitions, it is quite common to take that moment with the new team to do a real thorough from the ground up assessment of relationships that are problematic, difficult, complex. How many times have we done that with Russia, for instance? Um, and really try to grapple with redefining, you know, what are the essentials? What are the essential uh, interests that we have in, in, in continuing a, a productive relationship? And I would argue there are many, but there's no question uh, that Mohammed bin Salman as the king in waiting is a, is a very problematic uh, leader to deal with. And that will be one of the that will be one of the complexities among others in how the, the administration looks at redefining its relationship. And if it settles on the notion that, yes, we still have abiding interest because Saudi Arabia itself still has such influence to bring to bear on things, then they will still have to figure out how they deal with MBS, as they call them. Absolutely. It's going to be fascinating to see how all this plays out. I'd love to ask you just to close with a with a personal reflection as I read about your career and you know, you've just had this amazing set of opportunities to live and work all over the world as a um, foreign services officer. What have you enjoyed most about all that? I, I assume you have enjoyed it. What tell us a little bit about I, it? Just I did. Level. I loved it. I I've always said, uh, you know, that the the worst day in the foreign service was always a good day, and that I loved uh, I loved getting up in the morning, literally having no idea what fresh hell might await me at the office or at the embassy. What what spectacular event might have occurred or occur during the day? Uh, what American might need my help? need the mission's help. You know, I just felt um, every day that I got up with a sense of real purpose, whether I was in Washington or especially when I was out in the field, I always felt a sense of purpose. And, you know, that's what that's what pulled me in and kept me there for 33 and a half years was public service. That's really wonderful to hear. Ambassador Leaf, thank you for a really great conversation. I, I especially appreciate your candor in discussing, you know, what are a, a sensitive set of issues and, and really learned a lot. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. Thanks so much. I appreciate you being part of the podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. Really happy to be here. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew with support from McIntyre student Priti Nandi. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and to those who submitted such great questions. We look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!